Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Kevin Binning. Kevin is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Pittsburgh, where he is also a research scientist at the Learning Research and Development Center. Kevin studies diversity and equity in education, with the aim to both understand and improve pressing societal problems. In this episode, we talked about the background, the mechanism, and the future for interventions in classroom that can help foster equity in college science courses. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I am very excited to talk to you about your work, changing social context to foster equity in college science courses and ecological belonging intervention. So I have so many questions simply reading the title, but I wonder if we can just start by unpacking the title a little bit and ecological mm -hmm. belonging intervention. What does that mean? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, it might be helpful to contrast ecological from psychological. Um, and so if you think of psychological, you could kind of think of um, an intervention that's just delivered to where you invite uh, students to the lab, an experimenter walks through an experimental protocol. And what we're trying to do is change that individual's, uh, for example, their mindset, the, the way they think about, they understand adversity. Uh, do they see adversity as something they can overcome, right? Um, we do that. Uh, so we sort of try to still try to change the psychology, but we deliver that we deliver the intervention in a classroom setting where the intervention is actually led by uh, the instructor of the course who's who's been trained and kind of uh, in, in the process and in the procedure. Um, this is a social belonging intervention and uh, and it uses um, the message of, of other social belonging interventions, for example, the one uh, first reported in Walton and Cohen. 2007, that's uh, Greg Walton, Jeff Cohn, two Stanford folks, um, who uh, Jeff was actually my um, postdoc advisor and um, Greg has been my, my tenure stream advisor, if you will, um, with this line of work, both, both super supportive, awesome, awesome guys. Um, the, uh, the, the message of the intervention is that um, adversity, uh, for example, during the transition to college uh, is normal. Uh, so if you happen to be going through it, this isn't about you. This is about the situation that you're in and that it's surmountable, that this is a temporary thing that with time, with effort, uh, with support from others, you will get through this, this rough patch. Okay. Um, so you can imagine delivering that message to a person in a lab setting or where your instructor, let's say your foundations of biology instructor, uh, this very difficult large lecture course where I'm a brand new student on campus with a large lecture of 300 other students, um, where the instructor's actually leading that same intervention. Um, so the instructor starts off uh, at the beginning of the course uh, talking about, um, we're gonna do something a little different today. Today, we're gonna talk about your experience coming to college. And so the instructor right off the bat verbalizes the intervention message. I know a lot of you are going through a lot of changes right now. It can be normal to feel uh, uncertain. 
Uh, it's normal to, to wonder whether you have what it takes to make it here. If you happen to be going through those emotions right now, please understand that that's totally normal, right? Um, it's the same type of message that you would get in a lab setting, but it's from a person who you will be interacting with repeatedly, taking difficult course contact with. And the, yeah, so the, the, they start off with that. We then do um, elements of, of social belonging intervention, for example, um, getting exposed to stories from uh, past students. Uh, where the, the stories explain, you know, that adversity is normal. When I first got to college, I wondered whether I was smart enough to make it. Over time, I eventually found my place, and now I feel like I belong, right? Um, but then there's this, the, the, the other really critical component of what we call the ecological approach is a, a discussion. Um, so not only do students hear the message from the instructor, and uh, hear it from stories from older students, they also get an opportunity to converse with their peers in small groups around the intervention message. And we scaffold that discussion in a way that is intended to kind of reinforce the message. Um, I, I can go more into the weeds for that, but um, it's kind of staying, staying on a higher level then. Um, so what we then, thinking about the title, Changing Social Contexts, um, we do classroom level random assignment in that in that paper. Uh, so some classrooms just did business as usual. Okay, so it was regular icebreaker, like um, draw a mascot of uh, make a team name for your for your little group. So my group of four in in my biology section. Um, let's make a team. We're the heterozygotes. Okay, <laughs> uh, and then they draw a little picture of a goat. Um, and then they got up in in front of the class and presented their picture and their name. Everyone laughed, and it was you know it's a it's a bonding exercise. It's like a icebreaker, like probably several um, several of us and, and I know I've led in my courses. Um, so that's business as usual, but it doesn't contain the active sort of psychological content, right? Um, so half the courses, half the sections did business as usual. The other half did this uh, this activity designed to change the social context. And what we're trying to do here is to not just change the way I think about uh, my own adversity, but also the way I think that you think about my adversity, right? So this sort of this intersubjective space, um, we know, for example, Claude Steele's um, very influential paper, A Threat in the Air. And this was uh, the idea that a stereotype threat is not just living within me, but it's also kind of permeates the air, permeates the environment, the ecology of the rooms that we're in. Right. Uh, and so you can think of the, the ecological belonging intervention as trying to tackle that sort of shared construction, the, um, the intersubjective space that I know that you know about stereotypes. Right. So if we're if I'm a woman and you're a man and we're in physics together, um, we don't even have to discuss the stereotypes for me to know that these are kind of in the air. Right. Um, but if we instead of um, instead of discussing the stereotypes, we discuss this message that, hey, it's normal to struggle. And so if I am struggling, it's not because I'm a woman. It's because this is a this is difficult content. And not only that, but I'm going to get through this. Uh, I can, this is something, this is a normal blip on the road. It's not about me, right? If it if it is because I'm a woman, that's not going to change, right? I'm not my my gender's not going to change probably over the course of, of this one course. So it's a, you're kind of stuck then. If you get down that path where you start attributing your diversity to something that's fixed about you. Um, that can be a very kind of sticky place to be in, right? And so we do this at the um, first or second week of the course. Uh, we think timing is really, really important. This is a message um, Jeff Cohen and David Sherman have been, uh, another of my uh, advisors, David Sherman, uh, have been arguing that the importance of timing of these interventions 
and getting in there before students have kind of um, decided whether they do or don't belong. Um, but uh, let me let me pause there. I, I tend to ramble, especially. <laughs> but, um, yeah, um, thank you so much for unpacking these uh, concepts. And I do have a couple of questions. And since we're talking about these intervention steps, when I'm reading this, because as someone who do not have like basically any social psych background, I'm mm-hmm. just so intrigued about how did you come up with those intervention steps? So it sounds like it has been used by other people before, but in this particular context, it also seems to be like there's something new there. So before actually administering this um, intervention to a lot of people, because it does read like a very kind of effortful effort, how did you make sure that it's going to work? Like, are there kind of some design thinking behind those intervention steps? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and, and there's a fun story behind it too. So um, there was a paper written in the New York Times Magazine called Who Gets to Graduate? And it featured work by David Yeager and uh, Greg Walton and others. Um, some of my colleagues in the biology department read that paper. Um, this was this was uh, 2014-ish, uh, maybe 2015. I, I mean, you could Google that title, Who Gets to Graduate? It's a, it's a great article. Um, and they had, maybe they'd seen me give a talk or they had heard about my work in some way. And so they, they approached me and said, hey, you know, we heard about this, this, um, this line of work. We think we heard you kind of know these people. Is, is there something you could do in our class? Um, they are teaching foundations of biology. And it's, um, it's taught in a stadium seating uh, auditorium, right? Um, but the students have to form small groups of four and work together on problems in, in kind of this, you know, very ill-conceived classroom format, if you will, with the, in terms of just the, the structure of the course, you know, you either have to sit all in one line and then you're kind of looking across or you're like stacked, you know, like two above and two below and the, the people below have to turn their backs. Anyway, what they noticed was that, um, it's kind of anecdotally, was uh, students of color were more, tended to be more on the periphery of these small groups. And they would just kind of look around the classroom and sort of notice like who's participating, who's talking. Um, and they, they, they sort of noticed this regularity. And they thought, uh, hey, could, is there, is there an intervention we could do uh, in class to change, and to change the classroom dynamic, to get uh, students more involved, more talking, um, and to get these students who we think might be kind of contending with stereotype threat to get them more involved in the classroom discussion. Um, so enter Omid Fatui, uh, who is a, um, re- re- a, had just moved to Pittsburgh from Stanford, uh, where he had worked on the College Transition Collaborative with uh, Greg Walton, David Yeager, Christine Logel, Mary Murphy, um, all connected to Stanford through at least uh, one, if not two degrees of separation. Um, and, uh, he and I basically thought of how we could do a social belonging intervention in the classroom. Um, and uh, we really didn't know, um, this is sort of a, maybe a little bit of a commentary on how research develops over time. Um, while we were doing it, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't call it the ecological belonging intervention. We just said, how can we do a social belonging intervention in a classroom? Um, we've got a great instructor, her name's Erica McGreevy, who's actually a continuing, continues to collaborate, Nancy Kaufman as well. These are my biology colleagues. Um, they were well-versed in kind of the psychology behind it, and uh, but also just wanted to try something. Um, so we tried it one semester, um, 
And uh, we didn't look at the data yet. We just sort of anecdotally, the um, the instructor said, hey, this this feels, this, this thing felt good. Like the day we did it, um, I, I don't know if it had an effect on my students long-term. You can kind of imagine the instructor, she teaches four of these sections. She, by the end of the term, she couldn't, she couldn't remember which ones got and which ones didn't. Uh, but we said, okay, well, let's let's forge ahead. Let's do it again. Uh, we ended up doing it over a two-year period and then analyzed the data and found um, really, really encouraging results. So just like first cut, no covariates, nothing. Uh, we saw that um, non-white students in the control group, there was a, a significant gap in their course grades. Uh, but in the classrooms that received this intervention, there was no, no gap. The gap had basically been eliminated. Um, also, there was a main effect. Um, so it wasn't the case that um, some students did better at the expense of other students. It seemed that everyone did at least a little better, and some students did a lot better in, when they received that intervention. Um, then word got out in physics, um, and my colleague Chandralika Singh, who is also on the paper, um, she said, let's do this in physics. And so we then uh, ran a, a focus group and basically adapted the content we'd given to biology students to physics students. Uh, we talked to, for example, um, this, this focus group involved women in physics, women physics graduate students. And so we incorporated it in the story section, if you remember like the, the, the anecdotes from prior, from prior students. Um, one of the stories, for example, talked about being a woman in the class. And, uh, how it was kind of uncomfortable at first, but they kind of got through it over time and realized that there's, there's it wasn't a big deal um, uh, eventually. And um, and again, we saw that there was in the control groups and also historically. So we also went back in time and looked for these gaps um, like three years before the intervention. Uh, in the control group, there was a clear performance gap. Men were doing better than women. In this class, um, in general, men don't do better than women in, in our engineering college. But in this one class, they do. Uh, this is um, intro. This is a basic. Let's see, basic physics for engineers. So it's like calculus-based physics. It's it's not the it's not the one that doctors take. It's the one for engineers, uh, right? And uh, uh, it's a first-year level course, and uh, it's only about thirty percent women in that course. Um, so yeah, that in a nutshell, that's uh, or in a big nutshell, I guess. But that is how uh, how it kind of came to be. It was um, it was sort of a, there was a problem. Colleagues said, "Hey, what can we do?" and and that's what we came up with. That's so fascinating to hear. I definitely do not know that there's this like in real life back background story about this paper because the question that I had while reading uh, kind of the historical analysis sections on what disciplines did you guys choose is like. That part is like so fascinating to me. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how is it that different disciplines have slightly different performance gap? Because I think in biology, you, I think you looked at ethnicity as the mm -hmm. performance gap and in physics, it's a gender. Is there a reason why that different disciplines have like showed these different patterns? Yeah, that's another great question. So then um, there's, there's a few ways to answer it. One, I would say at Pitt, there was no gender gap in um, in this particular course uh, historically. Okay, uh, I know that that's not the case in, in biology courses nationally. Uh, but it for, for whatever reason um, at Pitt there wasn't. If you look at who teaches the course, um, it was predominantly women who taught the course. The course is also sixty percent, sixty five percent women. Um, 
So there's some, you know, suggestive things that maybe women didn't feel uh, as, as sort of a threat to belonging or their belonging level, their belonging uncertainty maybe wasn't uh, quite as high in that course. Um, there's other work from, from outside of PIT um, looking at um, stereotypes. So this is work um, uh, Leslie and Simpian and others, um, Andre Simpian, who is also closely connected to this, to this group, um, who have looked at uh, discipline-based stereotypes. And one of the, um, I, I apologize if I butcher some of these details, but um, one of the core findings is to what extent does a discipline kind of capture brilliant stereotypes? So in order to be a good X, you have to be brilliant, right? So uh, what disciplines go into the X, right? Um, physics is one. Um, philosophy is probably one. Um, but uh, psychology, not as much. Um, and a lot of the life sciences, not as much. Um, to the extent that that brilliant stereotype sort of dominates a discipline, you'll tend to see greater gender imbalances. So uh, men tend to be more overrepresented in disciplines that uh, stereotypically require, quote unquote, brilliance in order to be successful. Um, so all that to say is that I think there's cultural variation across disciplines, even within a university. In terms of who in that classroom feels um, uncertain about whether they belong there, uh, I also think so. That's like kind of a general thing, but I also think that that gets shaped locally. Um, enter this intervention, right? But um, you know, the instructor it's so has so much power, uh, and I, this is something I always tell instructors when I give this talk. Uh, it's it's in we underestimate how much influence we have over how students make sense of doing well or poorly in, in our classrooms, right? Um, and it's hints that we give. Um, it's the language that we use. Um, uh, some of our colleagues have, have studied things like uh, what's in the syllabus? Um, what sort of language conveys that you either are smart or you're not smart. And if you're smart, you're gonna do well. And if you're not smart, you're not gonna do well in this course. Um, the uh, that um, that message students are are very sensitive to. Um, we are um, not necessarily on a conscious level, but we pick up on these cues. And so I would say to, to answer your great question, again, um, apologize for the length of these replies, but uh, I think there's a lot of factors ranging from who's teaching the course, who's in the course, and what is the domain of the course. Uh, and all of these factors kind of go in you can kind of, um, if it's taught by a man in a kind of a male-dominated uh, course where brilliant stereotypes are really salient, my prediction would be that women are going to feel a high level of belonging uncertainty in that course. Um, and so let, let me know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That clears the pictures a lot. Uh, and thank you so much for like putting a lot of context around this findings because I real like I, I I noticed that you have been kind of trying to contextualize this finding in the context of being in the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and I do have like two other questions about the generalizability of this finding because the fact that it works is something very exciting. And first, uh, I think so far we talk about how, like, I guess the dynamics in the classroom has an influence on um, uh, who kind of felt threatened by the stereotypes. And I guess the other question is that, do you think there's um, some discipline that require more the quote unquote solitary work um, that might that kind of 
be influenced or like impacted by these um, kind of dynamics differently. So I'm thinking because in the both the biology and the physics, students are expected to like form little group and do probably like try to do experiment together or talk about like the PSET together. But I also know, for example, in the more humani humanity uh, disciplines, there tends to be more readings. There might be discussions, but at the end of the day, you're supposed to write your own paper, like put your own name on it. So do you think like, those type of disciplines um, kind of which dictates a different set of works will be influenced differently by the interventions? Yeah, that's a great question. So we this is something we're, we're starting to look at now, um, trying to expand to other disciplines. So um, first, this, this, this doesn't get at your question. We have replicated uh, the findings at Pitt at uh, University of Minnesota in a chemistry class. So, um, so we've seen results, these are all STEM courses, right? So biology, uh, chemistry, and physics. Um, we have not done the intervention in any, any humanities courses yet. Um, and my answer to that would be, I'm not sure. Um, so what I would wanna do is, um, what we've, we've kind of developed, this is again, uh, a lot of influence from the College Transition Collaborative and how they, customized interventions for different universities, we're starting to take that approach to different courses. And so what we're doing is we're going into courses and, and running focus groups with students who took that course. So um, we'll go through uh, the, the student warehouse, right? So that's what we call it. That's like the transcript, all the, all the grades of all the students, right? So uh, we kind of go through that uh, and look for what courses are sort of problematic. Where do we see um, larger gaps than we would expect based on things like where students came in, right? So, um, uh, for example, their high school GPA. So, um, based on their high school GPA, there shouldn't be a gap in this course, but there is. And we're seeing, you know, is it a gender gap? Is it a race gap? Is it a first-generation gap uh, versus continuing gen? Um, so, we'll identify that course and then go and, and run a focus group with students in that course and see well, what, what, what's going on here? Like what's going on in this class? What is it like to be a student in this class? Um, is it the, the, this threat perhaps that I need to do this all on my own, right? And that idea that I need to be a, um, a trailblazer, that I need to be in Pitt, literally our slogan at Pitt is forge your own path, right? So it's this very individualist message, right? Uh, be a trailblazer, go do things on your own. Um, Okay, yeah, that that's also aligned with you know university culture. We we really value this. We're uh, you know um, pulling the all nighter, doing the doing the thing that uh, um, work really 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 hard and, and get really really far all on your own. Um, I would argue that 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 gets that can go a little too far, um, and that what I hope that this intervention and if if for example we went into these courses and and we learned that. Um, that students have this idea that I, I need to do this all on my own, I would try to temper that and say, you know what, you don't have to do this all on your own. Yeah, your name's going to be first, but a lot of students um, get in, you know, inspiration and help from other people. And this isn't something you need to be, um, it doesn't mean you're less than if you get help from other folks. Um, we're, yeah, so the, the the solitary nature is something um, that I I'm, I kind of have a hunch that this intervention is going to um, try to mitigate a little. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of speaking a little bit from data here. So we did a uh, this last semester. This is brand new data. 
we did the intervention in uh, macroeconomics. Okay, so it's uh, again, it's not humanities, it's it's, it's not traditional STEM per se, but um, economics definitely. It's it's a tough course. This is macroeconomics, and I think it's it's tough in part because it's sneaky tough. Like students don't think it's going to be as hard as it is, and they get in there. We learn this from the focus groups. They get in there and they're like, I don't know what to do. I've never experienced it in my life. You know, these are good students. We're not as, you know, Pitt's pretty, these are by and large, these are really good students. They didn't get bad grades before. Um, So it can be very distressing to be sitting in a classroom and have no idea what they're talking about. You know, Um, we we asked them, we did a survey. So we, again, we did random assignment classroom level. One of the, um, again, apologize, very preliminary data, but one of the, cool data points to emerge so far is uh, we asked students how they studied for the midterm. Students who received the intervention were more likely to study with other peers and less likely to just study alone. Um, So it's not to say don't study alone. Like, yeah, you're going to need to study alone. (laughs) Sometimes you have to study alone. Um, But, you know, this, uh, this engagement with other people, uh, this sort of getting over yourself and admitting that uh, I might need help here. I didn't need help. I don't need help on everything. Some things I've got down, you know, and other people, I could help other people uh, if they would just ask me. And so if we could change the norms in the classroom so that it's not embarrassing to admit that you're struggling, right? That it's okay that everyone goes through it sometimes uh, and you'll get through it. And we're here to help. Um, Hearing your instructor verbalize that message at the beginning, we hope it's going to do things like increase office hours attendance. Um, Students might raise their hands in class more. Um, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, again, um, I, these, uh, maybe I'm sitting the podcast record for longest answers here, but. Uh, <laughs> no, I do enjoy uh, listening to this answer. And I, I, I really, really appreciate your sharing this message of like doing solitary work is not, doesn't mean that you are like alone in the thing, because it reminds me of my advisor in the every like quarter where there's new RAs joining the lab, he'll always spend like 10 or 20 minutes talking about, you know, like research is a solitary activity, but you should not be alone. You should know that you can always ask for help from other people. People get stuck all the time. Um, research mentors jobs are to get you to unstuck. So I, I really appreciate that message. And it's really uh, nice to see how it aligns with some of the findings that you have. Um, and another generalizability question that I want to ask is because at some point, these students in the introductory classes will be leaving the education system. They will be like going to workplace. So I wonder what about workplace? What about like the working environment? Because I know that in different fields like tech or finance, there's still going to be like big kind of gaps between different groups. Uh, so I wonder, are there kind of, do you have any thoughts on if uh, this type of intervention can work in workplace, which I think the metrics of performance might be more difficult to measure? Yeah, that's another great question. And, and I, am a, I am a social psychologist and, and you know, I kind of, um, and so I, I think about these questions a lot. Like what are, what are we really doing kind of uh, on, a, on a very general level here? Um, we're helping we're helping people, students in this case, but helping people through a difficult transition. Um, transitions happen a lot, right? Even within an undergraduate uh, career, the transition to college, but also the transition to your major uh, and to upper level courses. A lot of courses, a lot of majors here, like the engineering major, they have internships. So that's tra- sort of starting to transition into the workforce. I would I would argue that I think. Um, the, the psychology of 
transitioning to a new environment um, is has a lot of sort of latent similarities across different contexts and not even new environment, but like becoming a new parent. Even um, when when we had I use I use examples from parenting a lot when I when I give this talk, um, for example, the message that uh, you can help people by getting them to kind of help others. Um, I use that with my daughters all the time. I get asked my oldest to to help me, you know, get her sister out of the bath, for example. And what do you know? That gets hurt. That she gets she becomes in this mode, and then she's also behaving in a way that that's really helpful. You know what I mean? Um, so it's sort of this uh, um, this question of um, what Claude Steele, Jeff Cohen, and Dave Sherman would call kind of threats to self integrity. That's quite that that's owing to uh, this new thing that I'm taking on. Right. This uh, these questions I have about myself, do I have what it takes to make it? What does it mean if I'm struggling? Does it mean that I can't be good at this? Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm not a natural, right? This, this idea that sometimes we have things that we're just a natural at, right? Um, is that, are those the things that I should only be doing or, or can, I, can I get through it? And the way that students persist, uh, people persist and, and kind of adapt happens, a, it has a lot to do with the stories that they tell in the face of these uh, this adversity, so to answer your question, I think yes, um, probably probably not with you know it's not just plug and play. Just take this intervention and, and run it in the workforce. I would again, I strongly, I really want to do focus groups and sort of really understand that particular context because um, a lot of this work just hinges on this idea that context different even within a discipline. Right, talking our earlier discussion about different instructors and different demographic makeups. Um, but we are starting to think about um, graduate school. Um, so that's sort of the a near a near application, a near transfer of this work. Um, and something that comes up a lot uh, when I give these talks is you know the, the, the questions of am I smart enough to make it and the uh, um, the things I went through, like writing my dissertation. Oh my gosh, I procrastinated like nobody's business, you know, for my <laughs> dissertation. And uh, I got that advice. It was uh, there's two types of dissertations. There's the good, the perfect dissertation and the dissertation that gets finished. Um, <laughs> that, that, that little piece of advice really helped me because, uh, I, you know, this, there's all this pressure. It's got to be my magnum opus, the thing that's going to define my career. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, the other the other anecdote I often share is my first year of graduate school. I barely talked like seriously, like in, in meetings. I, I don't remember ever saying a thing. You know, lab meetings, um, colloquium, you know, never. I didn't talk. Um, second year, they, they forced me to give a talk. Uh, I stood up in front of the, the department and, um, and gave my talk, and it was okay. Uh, but I built a little bit of confidence. By the end of graduate school, I was, I was very talkative. Um, and then I went to my postdoc and, uh, at Stanford and um, in, the, in the business school and became quiet again. Um, and I, I got nervous and, you know, Stanford students are, are pretty impressive. I went to UCLA, so we had good students too, um, but it was a new environment. I was, I was in this role, you know, I'm the postdoc, so I'm a little older, I'm a little higher status in some ways. Um, and so I'm supposed to sort of act in that role. And that, that's a little bit threatening. Um, again, I, I, postdocs are much shorter, so I didn't have as much time to, to, to blossom, if you will. Um, but uh, yes, I do think uh, going into the workforce, um, I think this could be a, a great uh, a great tool for companies onboarding new employees. You know, what are the things that new employees 
go through. Like the um, it's, often it's a steep learning curve. You know, learning you're learning a new set of software, you're learning new procedures, you're learning the, the politics of the office. Who who's sort of uh, um, the the person I go for to for help? Uh, what does it mean if I go to help? Does that mean that I they made a mistake when they hired me because I couldn't figure it out? Right, like all of these things new employees go through. These could be addressed uh, through interventions like this. Um, so yeah, we are planning to do uh, uh, an, an ecological version of this intervention um, during uh, orientation for new graduate students. We're gonna we're actually gonna run a focus group this summer with um, chemistry. Pitt chemistry is is big. We're getting there's like sixty new students coming in, new doctoral students. I was shocked. It's a giant department. Um, and uh, and then hopefully we'll we'll do one in psychology as well. We're much we're we're still pretty big, I would say. We're, but only like 20, 25 new um, graduate students coming in. Um, and then uh, yeah, and then once I find a, a grad student who wants to apply this in in a business setting, um, I I would be really curious and interested in in applying that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Um, this is very fascinating to hear. So it sounds like this period of transition is when the intervention is most needed and probably also going to be most effective. Um, and I'm also kind of curious about how long would the effect last? Because I'm I'm thinking kind of like um to see like if there's any analogy to the vaccines, like you will get the first dose and you'll get your second shot, but it will wings off and you probably won't want to get your third dose or the, you know, like those additional boost, booster shots at some point. So um, do you have any thoughts or data uh, about like how long the effect of this is going to last? Or is it more like you get it once and you're probably going to set for life? Yeah, I, I love that question. And this is a, another big question in, in this line of work in general. Um, social psychological interventions, especially in education settings, um, where we see long-term effects from from relatively brief interventions. So, um, for example, uh, Parker Goyer, another um, Stanford postdoc, um, had published a paper in PNAS um, showing effects of a middle school intervention seven to nine years later, affecting things like um, college admittance and the prestige of the college that students went to if they received this intervention in seventh grade, right? I bet no, none of them remember receiving this intervention. So then the question is, well, what, what the heck does this thing do? Like, how could that happen, right? Uh, how come there isn't, how come it doesn't just decay like so many other things in psychology? Um, and so some of the theories put forth, uh, folks, again, uh, Jeff uh, Cohen, Dave Sherman, uh, Greg Walton, um, Jonathan Cook, uh, great. All these are all my colleagues in this in this area. Valerie Purdy Greenaway. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Valerie Greenaway. Now I think. Um, and so, yeah. Th so my answer is, um, it. We think that these interventions interact with the environment in a way that actually changes the environment um, as well. So, a student who received, for example, a um, who benefited from an intervention, let's say, let's go back to the middle school context. Um, I, I, I did the self-affirmation intervention. Um, I now um, engaged a little bit more on my assignment and my teacher noticed. And so they gave me a little bit more attention and that felt good. And so then I gauged in the next one even more. 
And the teacher, again, responded to me positively. They noticed, right? So the critical piece there is the student is, is sort of changing, but that change is being met by a change in the environment. And so that the, the sort of reciprocity of that change kind of pushing this effect forward through time by embedding it. This is a, a reason why I partly love this question is because um, this was a big thing for why we think the ecological approach is so powerful. So these are students who are receiving this intervention, not, not just in a lab setting um, with strangers, right? Led by a, by a RA, a psych grad student. No, these are, these are led by instructors and TAs in their courses and they talk about the intervention with their peers, who they will interact with over the next, you know, we're on semesters here, it's like 13 to 14 weeks. And there's a couple, you know, always a couple uh, weeks off for Thanksgiving or what have you. Um, so a bunch of times um, I am now, so imagine you and I are in a, in a biology work group where the heterozygotes, um, we haven't done any, any difficult work yet. Um, and, but you and I are both kind of have an understanding that, um, yeah, this course might be hard, uh, and um, we shouldn't feel embarrassed to admit it if, if it is hard. And we're going to work together on this, on difficult problems that are pushing us at, at the frontiers of our ability. Right? This is a, the frontiers of our ability. That's a Claude Steele-ism uh, that, I, that I borrowed. Um, so, you know, pushing us to our, to our limits, right? Um, but we're doing it together in a context where the instructor has given this message and where my peers who I'm working with and, and feeling this challenge with have also received this message. Um, in terms of data, we do have some. So uh, it's, a, it's a moderated effect. So um, bear with me, it's a little bit complicated, but I'll try to, try to make it as, as straightforward as possible. So um, first, there's a main effect of the intervention on attendance. Okay, so uh, the class, remember we did classroom level random assignment, um, and uh, we then had attendance for both classes, right? Control and treatment classrooms. Um, there was a main effect, regardless of uh, race, ethnicity, or gender, gender, that students who received the intervention came to class more, okay? Um, if you came to class more, okay? So now we then used, um, and reviewers had questions about this. So that's the, if, if it's, uh, we used the attendance variable to predict their long-term GPA. Okay, so just their overall college GPA um, years later. So depending on the year, remember we, we, we ran it for two years. So we had uh, for some, the most recent students, we had two years of data. And for the um, original students, we had up to four years of data. Um, so we took whatever, whatever longest term GPA data we could, we could find. And it turned out that attendance predicted GPA, but only in the classrooms that received the intervention. So the way you might think about this, again, using your uh, the vaccine analogy, is the strength of dose, right? So imagine a student who was in the intervention classrooms, but then never went to class, right? They were like, oh, I don't need this, or, you know, it uh, conflicts with my party schedule. I'm not going to go to that, <laughs> right? Um, that that student, at least according to this model, would not be predicted to show long-term benefits, in other words, they didn't get the, the full dosage of the of the ecology um, that a student who was there every day would have gotten. And so the students who not only got the intervention, but then came to class, those students had a higher GPA two to four years later. Um, and we'll continue to track them and, and look at things like graduation rates and that sort of thing um, 
uh, in, in future papers. But um, yeah, so it, it then raises the question, okay, I could see maybe how you get effects in that class, right? With this story about, you know, uh, this recursive story of me changing and you changing and you accepting my change and sort of feeding off it. And, and um, but then why would it persist, right? Why would it then continue to benefit over time? Um, when when the classroom, you know, when my peers who I who I experienced it with have all gone our separate ways, and you know, maybe I see them, but probably not uh, for the, for most students. They probably um, don't interact with those students anymore. Um, so the answer, I think, must be that it also has sort of an enduring change in in students' mindsets and sort of the way that they understand adversity going forward. Um, I don't have evidence for that other than just the fact that we we see effects, grade grade effects long term. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a great question and, and one that we still need to, we still need a satisfactory answer for. Yeah. Thank you so much for answering this. It's now, I guess it begs the question of, are there anything that practitioners in classrooms can do? Because when I was reading this, I was trying to think back when I was leading the sections in the introduction to psychology class. So we did have conversations about, you know, if you encounter difficulty, you should ask um, if this is your first time in psychology, you should like, you shouldn't feel afraid that it's something about your ability. We're here to help. But I wonder, do you have any suggestions for people who might want to implement some of the interventions, maybe the lighter weight versions into their classroom? I mean, like, are there suggestions you would give them? Yeah, I love that question, too. Um, yeah, the, um, oh, I just, I just wanted to mention Elizabeth Canning is the, is the author who's done work on syllabus uh, and fixed and growth mindset within syllabi. So um, syllabus, that definitely, the, the messaging that comes through there, um, you could look up her paper, I think it's an SP, SPPS, um, Social Psychological and Personality Science, Elizabeth Canning et al. Uh, Katie Monk's also a co-author, I believe. Um, no, I got approached, I got a, a, an instructor after I gave this talk one time, came up to me and said this exact question and, and actually had a, an example. And they said, you know, Kevin, I, I heard your, um, your example. I always say, yes, you know, share your adversity, share the fact that, you, that your path here was not linear. Um, it is so important for students to hear that, and they love to hear it. And, and I, I use my daughter for this too. Uh, she skins her knee, and I say, "Yeah, oh, I remember when I skinned my knee. I know that hurts a lot." And she looks up and says, "Really, Dad? You skinned your knee? Like, you know, like shocked. Like, I'm like of course I've skinned my knee, you know. But I'm Dad. Like, Dad doesn't skin his knee. Um, but and and so it really humanizes you. His his um, his anecdote was, "I am now teaching." the course that I failed the first time that I took, um, or it was the first exam that he took, he failed, something, something along these lines. And he said, should I tell my students that? I said, yes, please tell your students that. You know, you don't have to make a big deal of it, but like at the beginning of the term, maybe even when you're handing out your syllabus, you know, and you're talking about your expectations for the course and uh, that, yeah, this is gonna be challenging, but you will get, I'm, you know, I'm gonna give you the tools you need to be successful. Um, I know when I took this course, I struggle too, right? And that's totally normal. Uh, if that happens to you, I'm here to help, right? I am a, I am someone who will understand that you that this is hard, right? Um, and I would guess if he said that, you know, attendance at office hours would go up. Um, students might be more willing to raise their hand um, when they're when he's asking questions in class. So I think this idea of um, 
conveying that this this message that it's normal to struggle, that you don't have to struggle, you know, you're not supposed to, but if you happen to, that's okay, right? Um, and uh, or maybe you are supposed to. I don't know, you know, it's not like. Um, Anyway, that that you, you kind of get what I mean. Like it, it's uh, I'm not saying like something's wrong with you if you're not struggling, you know. But <laughs> but um, there's not something wrong with you if you are, right? Uh, and that I'm here to support you, right? This is um, uh, I love this message too. Um, this is work by Dave Yeager and um, and colleagues Jeff Cohen again on uh, wise mentoring. Um, and there's a lot of similarities with the messages. So what, what does a mentor do? What do they say to students, to their students, to kind of keep them persisting through adversity? Um, and the, the punchline of that is, um, I have high expectations for you. I, I think, you know, I have a high bar here. Um, I expect excellence. And, and this is the critical, the and, I think you have what it takes to do it, right? So uh, high standards with assurance that you can be successful. Um, that combination, I think, translates well to you know to, to your question. You know, what can an instructor say that sort of captures the the gist of the of the message that we're trying to convey? Um, standing up in front of the course and saying, you know, I expect a lot here. Uh, you are going to work hard to do well here, but. I'm also going to make sure you have everything you need to be successful and all the resources whenever, you know, whenever you start to struggle, um, that my door is open and I'm here to support you and that I want you to be successful and I think you will be uh, if you do this, right? Um, I think those, uh, they are nominally kind of separate work, uh, the wise mentoring and the social belonging intervention, but when you kind of look a little bit lower, a little bit deeper, they, they actually kind of end up saying very similar types of of messages. It's sort of this um, difficult but doable, right? This is hard. This transition to college, this is a lot, right? You are, you've left home for the first time. You don't know anyone here. You know very few people here. Um, you're taking difficult courses with where you're anonymous and nobody knows or cares if you're even in class. Um, that's a lot. That is, that is a big challenge. Um, we get it, um, but it's normal. And it's not, a, if you are struggling, don't confuse that with something about you. Uh, don't sort of uh, overgeneralize this, that it's something uh, you know, unfixable about yourself. This is, a, this is the journey. And lots of students have kind of gone through the same journey that you're going through and, and kind of come out the other end um, really, really positively, right? So um, yeah, I, I love that message. Also, um, you know, if any any listeners want to run this uh, in their course, I, you know, feel free to email me. I'd I'd love to talk. Um, I, I I do this all the time. I I've got, um, and uh, we don't even have to collect formal data for, for me to be involved. I I think it I think this thing works. Um, I'm, I'm a believer in it. I don't think it's going to always work everywhere, right? I think there are um, as as we know from social psychology, things depend, right? Um, so what we're trying to do now with a lot of our work is trying to figure out, well, where does it not work? Um, are there courses where maybe it's too threatening, uh, that this intervention is not enough, right? Uh, maybe we need more than just this. Um, there's probably also courses and instructors that don't need it, right? Um, they, uh, they already convey a lot of these messages. Their syllabus is already highly attuned to inclusive teaching practices and uh, growth mindset and um, addressing belonging uncertainty. Um, in that case, maybe maybe there isn't a need for this intervention. So I think that 
like so much in our in our science, there's probably a sweet spot uh, where this intervention is 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 sort of tailor made for um, for addressing what students need. Um, but what students need also that changes right over time, course, um, and domain. So uh, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much again for sharing these thoughts. I think those are really great tips that it definitely sounds very easy to incorporate in our teaching practices. And I hope, yeah, whoever is listening to this episode, if um, they want to get in touch, uh, they can probably find your email address uh, in the show notes or just um, Google your name. And yeah, thank you so much again for joining on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. Or if you have any other suggestion for future guests or topics for the podcast, you can click on the link to the survey attached in the show notes or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.